Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Wow, there is a lot going on. Welcome to the program today. This is remarkable, and it's going to get to 103 this week here in Portland. So climate change is on the calendar. The IPCC is calling it Code Red. But first, there are three things in particular that I want to get to, and a couple of things that are just incidental to the day. For example, today was the anniversary of the U.S. dropping its second nuclear bomb, this one on Nagasaki. A total of 700,000 between Hiroshima and Nagasaki people were killed. Uh, That was in 1945. And there's a a fascinating piece over at um, BBC. And in fact, it's titled The Forgotten Mine That Built the Atomic Bomb. And not only were we mining uranium here in the United States, but back in the 40s, we were importing very, very high-quality yellow cake uranium from Nigeria. And that, by the way, yeah, I mean, this is the same stuff. Remember when uh, Joe Wilson came out and said Dick Cheney was lying about Saddam Hussein importing yellow cake from Nigeria? Well, that was the stuff that he was talking about. And, Saddam, and Dick Cheney was lying about it in that case. But uh, anyhow, that's going on. But the main topics for the day that I want to get into, number one, our discussion thread. We started a new feature over at HartmanReport.com which is basically a discussion thread where you can do a deep dive into a particular topic if you'd like. And uh, you just click on our you know, daily discussion threads at the top and you'll see it. And my question today, and I, and I throw this out to you as well, Rand Paul is trying to start an anti-mask movement. He's even talking about uh, lawsuits and how you know, uh, you know, not wearing a mask is a right, and, we- and asking people to wear masks is tyranny, and all this kind of stuff. You know, he's promoting his libertarian view of society that we should be a we we should be a me society instead of a we society. It's bizarre. It's twisted. It's narcissistic. It reflects Ayn Rand and the and the child murderer that she based the heroes of her novels on. Um, you know, Mr. Hickman. And uh, sadly, it has a lot of followers. The question that I asked in our daily thread over there is, will he get traction on this? Do you, do you know people who, are, who think that they're libertarians and they're followers of, of Rand Paul and his 
bizarre ideology that we should end Social Security, we should end Medicare, government shouldn't be involved in any kind of welfare programs or any kind of subsidies for anybody, and that the only purpose of government is to run the military and the police. Uh, I, you know, I would say that's what he's describing and what he's trying to get for America is literally the definition of a failed state. But anyhow, that's our, our uh, uh, thread for the day. In the, after the break here, I want to get into Benedict Arnold and Donald Trump. But, our, but I'm, my main piece that I published today over at uh, HartmanReport.com is titled, Don't Despair, You Can Be a Trim Tab and Help Save the World. And it's kind of based on Margaret Mead's uh, famous saying where she said that, uh, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And I point out that this is something that people on the right are very familiar with. You know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about this back in 2002. It was an international bestseller called The Tipping Point, how small changes produce big results. And, and it's, it's true. Uh, on the right, for example, you've got this one militia group called the Three Percenters. And they call themselves the Three Percenters because they believe that only 3% of Americans fought in the American Revolution. Uh, they're, they're almost certainly wrong on their percentage. It, it looks like it was somewhere between 10 and 15%, which is a huge percentage, by the way. You know, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if only 3% of Americans ever fought in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan combined. We probably had a much larger percentage of Americans who fought in World War II, for example. But nonetheless, uh, even though they're wrong about the number, this 3% number, in all probability, they are right that it was a very small percentage of Americans. Uh, John Adams and others pointed out that only about a third of Americans supported the American Revolution at the time it happened. And many fewer than that supported it prior to the Boston Tea Party, which was 1773. It was three years before the Declaration of Independence. It was the Tea Party that convinced many of the, of the people who ultimately became the founders and framers that it was time to separate from England. Uh, you know, the, the year before the Tea Party, Thomas Jefferson had written a whole long tract that was widely published you know, A Citizen's View of the Rights of British Americans was the title of it, about how we can be good British citizens here in the colonies. Thomas Jefferson, for God's sake. And, and uh, you know, three years later, he's authoring the Declaration of Independence. What happened? Well, a little band of people in one town in Boston decided, no, we're not going to let the East India Company put all our little tea shops out of business. And they marched out there and they, did a, they committed a million-dollar act of vandalism. Now, I'm not advocating vandalism, but I am pointing out that small groups of committed people have always been what causes social change. People, the biggest problem I think that we're facing right now, particularly progressives and particularly in the Democratic Party, is this belief that you have to have a majority. You know, yeah, I could join the Democratic Party, but it's, I'm just one person, you know, or yes, I could sign up for Indivisible or Our Revolution or Go over to progressivehub.net, by the way, which is a brand new site that uh, Norman Solomon and Jeff Cohen have put up. Um, you know, a couple guys who've been on our show many, many times over the years. And they're trying to make this an activism hub. Another great activism hub is uh, over Daily Coast, dailycoast.com. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're literally raising money and doing things. You don't even need to leave your house. You don't even, you know, I mean, it's just very simple, straightforward stuff you can do to become an activist. But, but people don't because they think, oh, well, it doesn't work until you get half of Americans. No, not true. 
it wasn't half of Americans who got the Hyde Amendment passed back in the day. It was, it was a fringe, an anti-abortion fringe. It wasn't half of Americans who got the Environmental Protection Agency into place back in the 70s. It was a small group of, of committed environmentalists, probably fewer than 5% of Americans, maybe fewer than 3% who were actually active in that movement that Rachel Carlson started, or Carson started. It was not, uh, you know, 50% of Americans who were demanding seatbelts in cars back in the early 70s as a result of Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed. It was a small group of, again, it was probably less than five, fewer than 5% of Americans. And I just, you know, I, I hammer on this, this point in this article to try to encourage people, you know, join your local Democratic Party, find a group whether it's the, you know, the Sunrise Movement with, with, you know, for young people with, with climate change, or whether it's Progressive Democrats of America for older people really fighting for, well, not for just for older people. There's all kinds of people in PDA. Um, but, you know, fighting for expansion of Medicare so that it covers all Americans, Medicare for all. There's, there's a bunch of groups on that. Indivisible is doing great work across, you know, kind of trans uh, policy, all kinds of different issues. And they've got, you know, activist guidebooks and, and you know, every, every week there's a, here's, here's how you can get involved. These are essentially the trim tab folks. A trim tab is this little tiny piece of metal. It's about, well, it depends on the size of the airplane. And the little airplanes I used to fly, you know, it was like a foot tall and about three inches wide. And it's on the tail rudder, you know, the vertical, the vertical uh, uh, part of the airplane. Uh, there are similar ones on the giant wings. They're called ailerons. And with just a little motion on that, on that trim tab, it, it slightly alters the course of the airplane. You see the same thing if, you're, if you drive a car and you've got a wheel that's out of alignment or a tire that's soft. You let go of the steering wheel and the car will drift off to one side of the road. It's like a trim tab. Individual citizens, you can become the trim, trim tabs of society, the, 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 the folks who actually alter the course of history. And I'm telling you, the right-wingers know this. They know it well. It's why the Koch Network has invested in little policy think tanks in every single state in the United States. It's why ALEC twice a year gets together state, state legislators, state representatives, all, all Republicans, and you know big lobbyists and corporations. It's why ExxonMobil put $15 million into buying Facebook ads, and, and they and the American Petroleum Institute reached a half of, created more than a half a billion impressions among Americans. Small actions, in that case, relatively speaking, small actions can produce very, very large results. Again, quoting Margaret Mead, indeed, that's the only way it has ever happened. So we need to stop waiting for the vast majority to catch up with us before we try to do something about climate change or racial justice or voting rights. We can do that right now. I mean, this is, the, this is my whole, you know, tag your it. Seriously, tag your it. It's time to get involved. Have you gotten involved? What have you seen as you got involved? This is the Tom Hartman Program. When you look back, what movements do you think had the greatest consequence? Were you a part of any? I was part of SDS back in the day. We changed America. Stephanie in Bakersfield, California. Hey, Stephanie, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? 
Hello, Tom. This is regarding the people who still don't want to wear masks and want to ban them. Great. I often ask those if they or anyone they know is coming up for surgery anytime soon, how about if we ensure that none of the surgical staff will wear a mask during their surgery? Right. How would they like that? Right. Exactly. That's a great you know, question slash analogy, metaphor, whatever you call it. And there has to be something that's even more, I mean, you know, if, if you knew that somebody had an active case of tuberculosis, would you want them to wear a mask, for example? Exactly. <clears throat> I mean, you know, if you were sitting next to somebody on a bus and you knew that they had an active case of TB, or, uh, you know, Ebola, <laughs> you know, it's like, where do we stop? Where do we draw the lines? I mean, you know, as a society, we've largely drawn the line around the common cold and the flu. Although in, in Asia, you know, with much higher population densities, cities like Hong Kong and Taipei and, and Tokyo, um, when people are sick with the common cold or a mask, they wear, a, or the flu, they wear a mask. It's just like, you know, it's socially acceptable. Um, it's become the norm. So, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. Stephanie, thank you. That was a great one. Ernesto in Montgomery, Illinois. Hey, Ernesto, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm just calling. I, I just saw we, we left Afghanistan after 20 years. Right. And, you know, two weeks now or however many weeks we've got left, the country's almost taken over. Right, by the Taliban. They're, they're, yes. 20 years we were there. Right. Billions, trillions of dollars. And thousands of American oh. lives and, and probably a million Afghan lives. Where is uh, the outrage with that? I, you know, Why it's a damn good question. A war against the progressives. <laughs> and let's add to that, Ernesto, the, the, the phrase that the Taliban uses to describe themselves, and you'll find this in the American, you know, just in mainstream press, the phrase that they use to describe themselves is freedom fighters. They see themselves yeah. like George Washington and his merry band, the people who are evicting the occupying force. Uh, that's Correct. how they saw themselves when the Russians were there. That's how they saw themselves when the French tried to come in. It's how they saw themselves when the Persians, back in the Persian Empire day, the Iranians tried to take over Iran. They have always seen themselves as freedom fighters, and they are not unique in that. That is true of every society on earth. No country wants to be occupied. And, and how George Bush and Dick Cheney were so stupid that they didn't realize that, particularly after George Bush spent a whole year AWOL from the Vietnam War trying to avoid going off and having combat, is beyond yeah. me. I don't get it. Yep. I, I, I just, it just, it blows my mind. Yeah. And instead, what conservatives are trying to do is, is redirect the outrage toward Joe Biden. You lost, you lost Afghanistan for us. I'm sorry, you can't lose a country you don't own. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, like uh, it's amazing. Anyway, Ernesto, thank you. Thank you. That was a great, that was a great uh, punctuation mark. So I uh, <laughs> sort of teased what's going on with Donald Trump and the and frankly I think that you know this this really is worse than Watergate 
This is even worse than Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, you know, who was a general in the American forces and ended up deserting to the British, might have influenced the outcome of one battle. Donald Trump tried to end American democracy. And he had Jeffrey Clark right next to him. Jeffrey Clark, who is now uh, working with a right-wing think tank funded by the right-wing billionaires. You know, there's always a cushy, large, high-pay, six- or seven-figure job waiting if you try to destroy our country, waiting for you funded by hardcore right-wingers who are billionaires. Uh, it, it's just like, it's a, it's a law of nature now. And it's become really, really clear what, what's going on here. And, and frankly, I think that it's time for Congress and for the Justice Department to seriously consider and act on charging Donald Trump and Jeffrey Clark with seditious conspiracy, with conspiracy to commit sedition, to conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States, plus interfering with an official act of interfering with Congress, interfering with an election, trying to stage a coup. These are crimes. This isn't just bad acting. This isn't just Donald Trump's, you know, uh, lying about other politicians or lying about policies or lying about climate change or, you know, lying about his tariffs. or It's not any of that. We're talking actual crimes here. I also think, that, you know, Donald Trump is, is uh, refusing to support masking in any way. And you've got Rand Paul out there just ad openly advocating it. There's a, a meme going around Twitter, Tris, uh, over at Tris Resists on Twitter. Why do people who choose not to get vaccinated go to the hospital when they get sick? It's literally filled with people they don't trust, which is really an interesting question. Oh, you know, there's no COVID. I can't get COVID. I, you know, I can, I can fight it off with vitamin D and hydroxychloroquine and maybe this new, new uh, horse deworming drug that they've got, ivermectin. All of these things are phony baloney solutions. You know, there is, there are drugs that you can get that will fight COVID once you have it, like the steroids and the, and the, and the monoclonal antibodies, but you've got to, you got to get yourself to a doctor and you wouldn't need them if you just got vaccinated. But these people who are, you know, uh, Audra Lewis responses agreed. I told my my husband, they should set up TED hospitals for the unvaxxed. And instead of doctors and nurses to treat them, they have people who did Google searches on how to care for them. It seems only fair since they trust a Google search more than professionals' medical training. Spot on. Meanwhile, Tucker Carlson went to Hungary to talk about how wonderful Hungary's, uh, you know, so-called democracy is. He interviewed Viktor Orban, and Hungarian media censored part of his interview. Honest to God. There's a story about it over at rawstory.com. Tucker Carlson mocked after claiming Hungary isn't repressive than having his own interviews censored. It's amazing. Benedict Arnold was a piker. He had nothing on Donald Trump. So have you participated in any of these movements and seen change as a result? Are you enthusiastic and encouraged? I am. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. 
Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig. It's called A Very Stable Genius. And this is from the prologue. I alone can fix it. On July 21st, 2016, as he accepted the Republican presidential nomination in Cleveland, Donald John Trump spoke more than 4,000 words, but those five would soon become the tenant by which he would lead the nation. That night, Trump stood by himself in the center of the Quicken Loans Arena on an elevated stage which he had helped to design. A massive screen framed in gold soared above him, projecting a magnified picture of himself along with 36 American flags. This was a masculine LED manifestation of his own self-image. His speech was dark and dystopian. He offered himself to the American people as their sole hope for renewal and redemption. Past presidential nominees had expressed humility, extolled shared values, and summoned their countrymen to unite to accomplish what only they could achieve together. But Trump spoke instead of I. I am your voice. I will be your champion. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. It would be all too easy to mistake Trump's first term for pure, unadulterated chaos. His presidency would be powered by solipsism. From the moment Trump swore an oath to defend the Constitution and commit to serve the nation, he governed largely to protect and promote himself. Yet while he lived day to day, struggling to survive, surfing news cycles to stay afloat, there was a pattern and meaning to the disorder. Trump's North Star was the perpetuation of his own power, even when it meant weakening our shaky democracy. Public trust in American government, already weakened through years of polarizing political dysfunction, took a body blow. Tens of millions of Americans were angry, feeling forgotten by bureaucrats in Washington, derided by liberal elites, 
humiliated by a global economy that had sped ahead of their skills and consigned their children to be the first American generation to fare less well than their parents. Trump crowned himself their champion. He promised them he would make America great again, a brilliant one-size-fits-all mantra through which this segment of the country could channel their frustrations. They envisioned an America in which regulations didn't strangle the family business, taxes weren't so onerous, and good-paying jobs were plentiful and secure. Some of them also harked back to the 1950s, envisioning a simpler, halcyon America in which white male patriarchs ruled the roost, decorous women kept home and hearth, and minorities were silent or subservient. President Trump was the indefatigable pugilist for MAGA nation. He did not bother with carefully selecting a group of leaders to help him govern. The flashy promoter and reality television star believed he could run the U.S. government the way he led his real estate development company from a corner suite on the 26th floor of Trump Tower on his own gut instincts to seize opportunities and to size up and cut down competitors. Yet Trump's own recklessness hampered his ability to accomplish the very pledges on which he campaigned. From the start, government novices and yes-men made up much of his inner circle, a collective inexperience that exacerbated the troubles, wasted political capital, and demoralized committed public servants. The universal value of the Trump administration was loyalty. Loyalty not to the country, but to the president himself. Some of his aides believed his demand for blind fealty and his retaliation against those who denied it was slowly corrupting public service and testing democracy itself. Two kinds of people went to work for that administration. Those who thought Trump was saving the world and those who thought the world needed to be saved from Trump. The latter, who at times were drawn in by Trump's charm, were seasoned and capable professionals who felt a duty to lend him their erudition and expertise. Yet as the months clicked by, the president wore down these adults in the room with what they considered the inanity, impropriety, and illegality of his ideas and directives. One by one, these men and women either resigned in frustration or were summarily dismissed by Trump. He engaged in a constant cycle of betrayal, rupturing and repairing relationships anew to constantly keep his government aides off balance to ensure the continuity of his own supremacy. Some of them now sigh from a distance at a president they'd hoped to guide and the realization that fewer voices of wisdom remained to temper his impulses. They lamented a president who nursed petty grievances, was addicted to watching cable television news coverage of himself, elevated syncopants, and lied with abandon. Trump had delivered in part on his promise to be a human hand grenade, to raise and remake Washington. He has weakened the regulatory state, toughened border enforcement, and refashioned the federal judiciary, including two nominations to the Supreme Court, all priorities for his conservative political base. Trump also transformed America's trade posture, weakening multilateral agreements, which he believed allowed smaller countries to take advantage of the United States, and forging new bilateral accords on more favorable terms. He inherited a growing economy from President Obama and kept it humming, even as economists in mid-2019 predicted an eventual turndown. The book, A Very Stable Genius, by Rucker and Lennig. Right now, 
now on the line with us is our old buddy Charles Sauer, the libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute, the author of the book Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. Marketinstitute.org is the website. His uh, Twitter handle, Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. And uh, Charles, I, I wanted to get you on because the, the this big story right now is these uh, kind of dueling infrastructure bills, the three and a half trillion dollar one the Democrats are trying to put together through reconciliation, the one that has about five hundred billion dollars worth of new spending, they call it the one trillion dollar one that the uh, so-called problem solver Democrats and Republicans have gotten together on. And because so much of the Republican Party, particularly the the intransigent <laughs> faction, essentially, the people like Rand Paul consider themselves libertarians and you're a libertarian scholar. I wanted to get the libertarian take on infrastructure in America. What are your thoughts on all this? First off, I think that there's multiple ways to talk about this. I don't think that Rand Paul is necessarily against infrastructure or the government involvement in infrastructure. And I've read literature that proposes the government not being involved in infrastructure or roads at all. And I would encourage everybody to read that. I would encourage everybody to read literature on all sides of all issues. That isn't the one that won me out. In fact, one of the ex-heads of the Cato Institute wrote one of the better papers in this that shows that it's actually way more efficient for the government to build roads. I think where Rand Paul sits is when you look at any of these solutions, they're dealing with stuff way outside of just funding roads and even electrical grids, and they're providing these nuclear power plants. Your phone is fading in and out. The story that I've heard from, you know, not just Ron Paul, but so many libertarians is that, you know, everything, including infrastructure, should be left to the private sector, that if you're going to have roads, they should be toll roads. If you're going to have, you know, uh, fill in the blank, if you're going to have water supplies, it should be somebody should be able to make a buck off it. There's been arguments that have been made for that, but I think the predominant literature says that the government is better at running those. But we have seen productive and effective private toll roads being added in a lot of cities, including some of them that are working, and they help for both sides. They help people that can afford it to get out of the traffic, and the people that can afford it have less traffic because of that. So we've seen private roads work, but if we privatize the whole infrastructure, A, it's not as effective or efficient for the market. And so the government is actually better at doing that. And most of the literature says that. Paul, he would likely agree with that. Yeah, you keep fading out here. So we have physical infrastructure, roads, bridges, rail, airports, all this kind of stuff. Apparently you have no problem with the federal government being involved in that. That doesn't that disqualify you as a libertarian? No. I, again, one of the past heads of the Cato Institute, one of the top libertarian think tanks, um, Bill Niskanen, agrees with me on that. Mm -hmm. The okay. government has a role. It's just that the government doesn't have a role in everything that we do. It needs to be limited in that role. So what about our human infrastructure? What about our educational system, for example? Uh, you know, what I've been hearing from libertarians for years is that you know, we shouldn't have public schools. Everything should be private. Everything should be local. Everything should be, you know, funded by whatever. <laughs> People should have skin in the game. Where are you at with this? Well, we have a public school system, and there's nobody that can tell me that the public school system is winning right now. The places where our school system is doing good is where people have a choice 
to exit that system. If you look into Washington, D.C., there was an uproar when they tried to cancel the ability for parents to actually get into charter schools. That isn't like in Texas or someplace. This is a liberal bastion where people were fighting to get into charter schools, and that's because the public school system is so bad. So I'm well, I think that's a function of the property tax, system. Charles. This is, I mean, you know, but we, we decided back in the 1890s when public schools in the United States really became a thing that they would be funded by property taxes specifically. And the, you can go back and read the, you know, the whole, this all started in Boston. And the, the wasps who were running Boston, at that time, the really poor people, the ghettos in Boston were Catholic, Irish Catholic. And, and they did not want those people to have good schools. The wasps didn't. Uh, they, they, you know, they want, and so they said, you know, the the poor communities are going to have crappy schools because they're going to be funded by property taxes, and the wealthy communities are going to have great schools. And that's what you're describing in Washington D.C. It's what we're describing all over the country. Why don't we just nationalize our schools like every other developed country in the world does, or pretty much every other one? That's an that's an interesting way to put fear into people's minds that racism is dominating the country, but it the is. statistics don't. But the statistics don't follow that, Tom. If you look in Kansas City, there is more money spent per student on students in the city when uh, Manuel Cleaver was leading the city than in the suburbs where I grew up. Yeah, but and in some so cases, or in many cases, that. Charles, if you're coming into a school under, district Tom. that historically had been segregated, legally had been segregated prior to the 60s, then you've got massive problems with your physical infrastructure. You've got multi-generational problems with your educational infrastructure. There's a lot of catch-up to do. So, yeah, it costs more for a, maybe a generation or two. That doesn't mean that you're, you're not, you know, you shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't be bringing schools up to the standards of everybody else. And then on top of that, it's compounded by the fact that, again, they're still funded by property taxes. All right. Again, you're still not working with the actual numbers, because now if we move over to Denmark, which has these things that you call for, the actual school system doesn't create equality. It doesn't do the things that you're wanting. And that's because there are different parts in society that we need to address first. Um, look, I've been fighting this inside the conservative movement about marijuana laws. People are scared about marijuana laws. <laughs> And I've pointed out there's bigger things on our list about focusing on education, um, focusing on uh, family and house, house lives and correct policing. If we look at the educational system um, and we can see in Denmark that the government system doesn't close the gaps, we need to look at other ways to do it. And that might be privatized. The left well, just at least needs to open you're, you're up trying their to minds deal with to this. Poverty with with privatizing schools, it just it, it, it seems like a mess to me. Anyhow, Charles, it's always nice to touch base with you, and thanks for bringing me up to date on your thinking on these issues. I appreciate it. Thank you. Charles Sauer, his book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do, marketinstitute.org is his website, and you can tweet him at Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. Uh, let's pick up your phone calls and see what's on your mind. Gloria in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Gloria, what's up? Oh, thank you, Tom. I just want to tell you, Mr. Hartman, that you are my idol. I think you're great. I listen to you so much. Well, thank it's you. It's an honor to speak to you, and I'm a little nervous. But anyway, I wanted to tell you, you were just talking about a small amount of people can make a difference. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we we have an organization. I'm located in Wisconsin, and we have uh, we have what they call soul saving our unique land. It's a small group of people, and we want to save our land. We actually want to save our land inside of Wisconsin and Wisconsin, and actually in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And we are being and right now we are being taken over by a corporation, and that corporation is international. And it's outside of, well, it's in Canada, and it is doing great harm to our area in the Midwest. And how is that happening? And I I want you to know right now that I'm a climate reality leader, and I've gone all over the United States to represent the fact that I want to make sure that we get rid of fossil fuels. So I myself, we have 44 solar panels. Okay. But what is happening is destruction of our health and our lands in the Midwest. We have soil that's five feet deep, does not have a rock in it, and they want to destroy that. Yeah. Well, congratulations on being an activist. It's, it is uh, so important. Is there a website for the work that you're doing there in Madison? Yes, it is. It's called nouplands.com. How do you spell that? No, N-O, and I think there's a dash there, and then Uplands, U-P-L-A-N-D-S dot com. No, Uplands dot com. Very cool. Yeah, right now, we, Tom, we are getting 172 industrial wind turbines that are dinosaurs that they want to put in a small area that causes health, causes cancer, causes heart palpitations, causes uh, causes respiratory problems, and they want to put them, and then these people in our area are having to leave because there's no way we can live in that area right. because it's a health issue. Yeah. And it destro- they put tons and tons and tons of concrete, tons and tons of concrete. So I'm for solar putting it on your own roof, businesses mm-hmm. putting it on their own roof, yeah. and not having to have, have to you know, kill our land and kill our people. I'm with you. Gloria, I, I need to get uh, some more callers in here, but thank you. It's, it's, and God bless you. I mean, it's just great. Teresa, or the gods bless you, whatever. Teresa in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Teresa, what's up? Hi, Tom. Boy, your, in, your listeners are an inspiration. That's, that's so great. I agree. To me, um, too. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I wanted to talk about Rand Paul and just the libertarians in general. And, you know, they have so much hypocrisy. It's just kind of nauseating but you know how they just want government like you said just to be police and military and get the government out of the way of everybody's lives i thought about well how would they feel if we got rid of all patent protections because isn't that just a big heavy-handed government interference in the free market it is patents used to be referred to as monopolies when you read the writings of the people at the time of the the writing of the constitution they always referred to them as a government granted monopolies which is exactly what they are so, yeah. Yep, yep. And, you know, I, I mean, it's just another example where they like big government that benefits them and their cronies, yeah. and they hate big government that, you know, benefits the working people. Yeah, yeah. Very well said. Teresa, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Charles in Miami, Florida. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? I uh, love your show as usual. Yeah. Um, I would tell you definitely on, I think his name is Greg Clark. The guy with, no, it's with Jeffrey Trump, Clark. Jeffrey Clark. All right, I'm sorry. Jeffrey Clark. Just like Jeffrey Rosen, his boss. <laughs> that's he, that's why it's easy for me to remember. Yeah, well, to remember that way. Yes, exactly. The thing is that I see is just one or two things. 
either we put the pressure on our attorney general, which, you know, somebody has to tell me why he had to be Republican. Why do we have to have a Republican and any of our cabinets anymore to prove legitimacy? Well, hang on just a second. You know, it was, yes, it was a Republican, you know, the Republican senator from Utah, Orrin Hatch, who recommended Merrick Garland to uh, Barack Obama, but Garland was a Clinton appointee. He's never declared any kind of political affiliation, but Bill Clinton was the first guy who put Merrick Garland on the federal bench. So there's every reason to think that he's, you know, cut out of the mold of kind of the, what you might call a moderate Democrat, Charles. Right. Well, in my opinion, we don't need that anymore. We, we could have got any other liberal, progressive Democrat to do the same job. My thing is this, the system is already corrupt. So it's not a matter of if that um, the, the, the Justice Department is going to try to do that. But, you know, do they have the will to do it? And I just think it's too much money sloshing around in the system. And we're on the outside looking in. And as far as Donald Trump, everything this man stands for is just like, why the hell isn't he in prison right now? It's and poison, yeah. Why are we why are we taking why are we taking their word that he, all of these donations that's coming into Donald Trump right now is above board and legal? Why isn't the Justice Department at this point looking into those donations right now? We know They may well be, Charles. We know the history that well, we know the history that Democrats have said that he has. Okay? Right. So right now we need to jump on them like what like <laughs> <laughs> like white on rice, yeah. and we need to, <laughs> you know, we we need to do some house cleaning, yeah. man. Because I, I'm, I'm with it, you know. and and I, you know, and I get and I get your upset about Eric Holder. I or, or excuse me about uh, Merrick Garland. I was just going to say I think that Eric Holder bringing him back to run the Justice Department would have been a much better move on you know for Biden. But he was you know he wanted to put his own stamp on it, and Merrick Garland was a guy who got badly dissed uh, by the last uh, by the by the former guy, uh, TFG, you know. And, and uh, you know, he's trying to be the present guy. I get all that and, and, you know, totally support it. But anyway, thank you very much, Charles. Good to hear from you, as always. Peggy in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Peggy, what's up? Good morning. I want to tell you how important your show has been to me and how many people I have turned on to it. I think you do an incredible amount of research. But I want to thank you, but I'm not supposed to do small talk. So let me just launch right into <laughs> thank you, <Peggy>. uh, <laughs> my point. You were talking earlier about how much difference one person could make. Mm-hmm. And here, actually north of Santa Fe, there's been a huge amount of Bureau of Land Management oil and gas leases with absolutely terrible environmental analyses. I've retired from that business, but I found they were going to be drilling 20 miles north of where I lived. And all I had to do is put up uh, notices at the libraries, the one and only store, and the post offices. Forty people showed up for the meeting. This was six years ago. And we organized as a 501c3c. And we uh, worked with a pro bono law firm called Western Environmental Law. And we have been successful in supporting four different lawsuits up to the district level of appeals saying that they can't permit these leases that they've leased on public land 
strictly for oil and gas, where they did an adequate environmental analysis, and we were able to get them to look at the other side of the Continental Divide. And basically, they've quit drilling and permitting oil and gas leasing. You beat the uh, fossil fuel industry, and it, was, and it started with one person putting posters up in a couple of places, and that one person was you, Peggy? That was me. And um, <laughs> You're wonderful. <laughs> we started uh, 501c3. We've got a uh, board of directors of six people who've been here continuously, all with different specialties, mm-hmm. and met with the BLM. We've got the community organized to write, oh, at least 100 protest letters by giving workshops and putting examples up on our website. Mm-hmm. And oh, she just dropped off. It happens sometimes. Uh, cell phones and all that kind of thing. Uh, Lucretia in Los Angeles. Hey, Lucretia, what's up? Hey, greetings. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. I just want to also, you know, chime in on your rant about it being a small majority. Minority. It's always been a small majority that have evoked change. You mean a small minority. Uh, One of my favorite go-to references is Harriet Tubman. Mm. She's widely celebrated today, but one of her famous statements is, I could have freed even more slaves if they only knew they were slaves. Mm. So the adversity that she faced within her own group, us, and how you know, just conviction alone. She wasn't military, you know, trained. She didn't have all of these prerequisites. She was just an everyday woman who saw that things were wrong. Mm -hmm. And she changed the world. Accordingly to it. And that's how it's all been. Even when it comes to debates, when I have, when I'm having my round table discussions, One of the things I point out is thank goodness for those small amount of people within our group that thought outside of the box because they were viewed as troublemakers that were rocking the norm. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't for them, we could have still very much been in chains. So, you know, no, it's never been a majority ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's always it's always started with a small group, Lucretia, and you are so right. And by the way, anybody who has not seen the movie about Harriet Tubman really needs to make an effort to go see that. But spot on. And and you don't have to even rise to the level of being a Harriet Tubman. I mean, it's just, it's like Peggy was talking about. You can be a local activist in a way that most people don't even know about, and still have huge impact. Lucretia, thank you so much. Thanks so much for con- that contribution. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Our book today is Jailbreak Out of History by Butch Lee. Uh, this is from the first chapter, Jailbreak Out of History, Harriet. Focus on Amazons, about why we deal with real women as myths, girls who never really existed. Yet and again, all are around us and that we can't bring ourselves to see. Because seeing through white men's eyes is about non-vision of ourselves. So let's deal with a real Amazon. Think about Harry and Tubman. Take six months. In fact, take a year and think. Break it on down. What does it mean to be the most famous new African woman in U.S. history? What does it mean to be stuck in that lie? What's the meaning of being famous while being hidden and disfigured and dissed? Let's jailbreak Harriet Tubman out of white history and place her in Amazon and New African, her story, her story, her people's story. Harriet Tubman's life is a live weapon placed in our minds, showing us what it means to be an Amazon, which is why the capitalist patriarchy has forbidden us to touch on it for so long. In this, maybe for the first time, we can see Amazons as a future force in a clash of peoples and nations. Not as myths, but as players in the whole difficult course of world politics. We can also appreciate the bittersweet tang of reality as the peeling away of layers of propaganda and disfigurement which have hidden Harriet from us exposes how much we assume and how little we have known. New African women have already pointed out the significant pattern of Harriet's exclusion. Cultural critic Bell Hooks said recently, I mean, if we could recover Ida B. Wells and Harriet Tubman to the extent that we've recovered, say, Zora Neale Hurston, I think that's an important contrast because people want to bury that revolutionary black female history. Her historian Deborah Gray White connects Harriet's treatment to a larger pattern in the mainstream history of slavery in which black women, quote, were reduced to insignificance and largely ignored, end quote. In examining the influential historian Stanley Elkins, she points out, quote, that Elkins seems to omit women altogether was accentuated by his description of slaves whom he identified as part of an American underground, those who never succumbed to Samboism. Among those mentioned were Gabriel, who led the revolt of 1820, Denmark Vesey, leading spirit of the 1822 plot at Charleston, and Nat Turner, an omission conspicuous by its absence, was Harriet Tubman. If Elkins had really been thinking of slaves of both sexes, he would hardly have forgotten this woman, who became widely known as the Moses of her people." End of quote. Patriarchal capitalisms, which only want Amazons to be exotic myths about forgotten ages, have hidden Harriet Tubman in her own fame. They both trivialize and exceptionalize her. These are tools of oppressor culture. The stripped down and censored version of her life is told in elementary schools all over the U.S. empire. So much so that everyone thinks they know her story already, although they don't. 
Harriet Tubman was born in slavery in Maryland around 1820. She escaped to the North when she was 29, but kept returning secretly to the South again and again to help other slaves escape. For this, she became known as Moses. True statements. But by limiting her, it becomes clever propaganda against her and against her people. Where patriarchy has been unable to deny that women do significant things, it denies the full meaning of what we do by trivializing them. Mary Daly, feminist philosopher, traces the enormity of what patriarchy has done to us. In ancient Greece, the goddess Hecate, also known as Artemis and Diana, was sometimes known as Trivia and represented by a three-faced statue. That was also the name used for the intersection of three paths, which in many old cultures were the sites of mystical power. She writes in Gynecology, quote, in light of the cosmic significance of the term trivia as the crossing of the three roads and of the goddess who bears this name, contemporary meaning of the term in English should be examined. The English term, which according to Merriam-Webster is derived from the Latin trivium or crossroads, is defined as common, ordinary, commonplace, of little worth or importance, insignificant, flimsy, minor, or slight. Of course, according to patriarchal values, that which is commonplace is of little worth. For in a competitive hierarchical society, scarcity is intrinsic to worth. Thus, gold is more important than fresh air, and consequently, we are forced to live in a world in which gold is easier to find than pure air. End quote. So to trivialize Harriet Tubman, the capitalist patriarchy pictures her as an idealized woman by their definition, who makes a life of helping others. Thus, her deeds are squeezed into women's assigned maternal role as nurturer, helper, and rescuer of men who then go on to do important things. But Harriet wasn't repping Mother Teresa. She wasn't even any kind of civilian at all. She was a combatant, a guerrilla, a warrior carrying pistol and rifle, fighting in her people's long war for freedom, a war that rocked the foundations of American society and that has never gone away. Think about what it means to be called Moses, which was the code name other new Africans gave her, and which became Harriet's famous warrior name in the anti-slavery underground. When we check out the Bible, we can see that Moses was a ruthless visionary, someone who forced the boldest changes and risks upon his people so that they could survive, who led them out of captivity. To put it simply, Moses was a leader in a time of war. So too was Harriet Tubman. The book, Jailbreak Out of History by Butch Lee. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And, you know, I guess I've already flagged this IPCC report. Jeffrey Rosen has testified behind closed doors. How do you think this is going to play out? I am astonished on the one hand that we are learning now that there was a guy inside the Justice Department, Jeffrey Clark, who reported to Jeffrey Rosen, the, the, the acting attorney general, who arguably didn't even have the authority to be the acting attorney general. He wasn't, you know, Senate approved, but Trump had him there anyway. And Trump thought that Rosen was going to have his back because Bill Barr had, you know, when, when Trump came to Bill Barr and said, I want you to help me steal the election, by publicly saying that it was a fraudulent election so that we can get the Republican-controlled swing states where there's Republicans controlling their legislature, even if they have a Democratic governor, um, states like Wisconsin and Michigan, and, well, in this case, it turned out to be Georgia and, and Arizona. If we can get those states 
to call a special session of their legislatures. And the Republicans in those legislatures simply say, it doesn't matter how the people in our state voted. It doesn't matter that they voted for Joe Biden. We are going to award the electoral votes, the electoral college votes for our state. We're going to award those votes to Donald Trump. And had this plan worked, Donald Trump would be president right now. And we would, I probably wouldn't be on the air. I mean, you know, look at, look at uh, you know, when autocrats come to power, Viktor Orban, uh, 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 Vladimir Putin, I mean, long-term autocrats like the UAE and Saudi Arabia, they do not tolerate dissent by and large. Or if they do, it's so marginalized that it's just like, well, yes, we have dissent here. Look, there's that one guy who's got a, he stands on the street corner every day with a sign. We don't arrest him. I mean, that's how it works. That's where we'd be at. This is what Tucker Carlson is openly advocating when he goes to Hungary and pushes Viktor Orban. And, and then he asks Viktor Orban about China, and Orban doesn't give him the answer, that, you know, the answer that he wants. And then Orban's press in Hungary censors Tucker Carlson, who I guarantee tonight, well, I can't guarantee, but in tonight in all probability on his program now that he's back in the USA, He's going to be talking about the wonders of Hungary and their free press. And, oh, yeah, right. But anyhow, this guy, Jeffrey Clark, actually wrote the letter to the governors and the legislatures of Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and Pennsylvania and Georgia saying, Call your legislature into special session. And if you have a Democratic governor like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, you don't even need the governor's permission. You Republicans who control the House and Senate in those states because of gerrymandering, you Republicans can call yourself into special session and award your electoral votes to Donald Trump. And he was going to do this. He had the letter ready to go. He had the names of all the people to send it to. I, this is an attempted coup. It's an attempt to end democracy in the United States. It's a, an attempt to replace the guy who won the election, Joe Biden, both the electoral votes and the popular vote by 7 million, won the electoral vote by, I think it was 47 votes. An attempt to replace him with Donald Trump, the guy who lost the popular vote in both elections. He lost in 2016 by 3 million votes. He lost in 2020 by 7 million votes. He won the Electoral College back in 2016 by, you know, with 74,000 votes in, in five states, which is just like, you know, kind of, you look up, you know, winning by the skin of your teeth or cat's whisker or whatever, pick, pick your cliche in the dictionary, and what do you see? A picture of the 2016 election. By the way, we can't say this often enough, and you need to memorize this and say it every time you have an opportunity. The last Republican president who came into office, now I say came into office because George W. Bush got reelected with, he actually won the majority in 2004, but he didn't in 2000. The last Republican president who came into office with the majority of the popular vote was George Herbert Walker Bush in 1988. It has been over 30 years since a Republican actually won, actually gained the White House by winning the popular vote in the United States. That's how unpopular Republicans are.
This is how, you know, the electoral college and gerrymandering are the things that are holding them in power pretty much exclusively. And the, you know, the Senate have each state having two senators. So there was this actual plan inside the Department of Justice and we came that close. And I'm wondering why we don't have screaming headlines, Trump attempts treason in newspapers all over America. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. I mean, this is so much bigger than trying to cover up the break-in of the DNC, which is what, you know, they nailed Richard Nixon for. This is huge. Jeff in Gurney, Illinois. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind? Here's where I'm going on environmental. You know, there's an environmental protection agency, and they'll say, well, your car's got to get so many miles per gallon. Or certain, there's a whole safety division of that, too. But, you know, on a large company standard, who tells the airlines what they can do with the fuel? Or who tells anyone? That the EPA the does. Because they've got the money to buy it. So, in other words, if there's 50 flights going to New York out of L.A. every day, are they all filled? Could there be 30? You know, something. In other words, whoever's got the money to buy the fuel just uses it. It's just like Bezos' yeah. rocket or the other guy's rocket. Well, he's got the money to buy it, but there's no responsibility for the purchase of the fuel. They just go and do it. Well, this they is why we need it. a carbon tax, Jeff. Carbon tax right, easily exactly. solves that entire situation. And if you do it where the, t- the money, the revenue from the tax is given back to people who earn less than $50,000 as a rebate so that they're, because it is going to increase the cost of gasoline, so that they can still get to work. And, you know, the increased cost of fossil fuels not only doesn't hurt them, but actually profits them, then you've got a really sweet little system there. The problem is you've got, you know, every Republican is opposed to it because they're owned by the fossil fuel billionaires and a couple of Democrats as well, like Joe Manchin. Right. Well, the thing is, too, is another thing that can be instantly done. I think this has been talked about before, you know, like with a school district. Okay, the school district's got 50 buses. Well, you tell them, you know, if you want the money from the state or whatever, 10 percent of the fleet's going to be an all electric bus. They are actually out there. The same goes with the mail trucks. You've got to start small. And you can build up into a system that says, okay, now we're at 10%. And in a few more years, we want your fleet to be 40%. I agree. It was in 2006. It was in 2005 that the post office announced that they were going to electrify 400,000 vehicles across the country. They have the largest single fleet, individually owned fleet of vehicles in the country. And that was when the Republicans in Congress said, oh, no, you don't. You put $5 billion a year aside every year for people who are going to retire in 75 years. A phony baloney program to shut down the electrification of the post office. Thank you for the call. Anyhow, we're out of time. We'll be back tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Seriously, it does. Check out my rant about this at HartmanReport.com. You'll see what I'm talking about. It works. Tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 